This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the History Listen on RN Summer. I'm Kirsty Melville. And today, a story of deceit and duplicity set in Cold War Australia. In the early 1950s, a housewife named Anne Neal made a life-changing decision. She joined the Communist Party. She was a real motherly type. They would say she was quite a nice person. She even meets the Soviet spy whose defection rocked Australian politics, Vladimir Petrov. Vladimir Petrov, an official of the Russian embassy whose home is in Canberra. But what did Anne Neal truly believe in? Brett Evans's search for Anne Neal begins over 65 years ago in the city of Churches. Have a seat, comrade. No, no, here, by the desk, please. We're in a room in Adelaide at 182 Hindley Street, just above the People's Bookshop. It's the 28th of April, 1954. Well, as you know, with our organisation, we have to ask questions and we expect them to be answered. It's necessary that we find out certain things. Uh, Eddie, would you lock the door, please? Thank you. We're eavesdropping on a conversation at the offices of the South Australian branch of the Communist Party of Australia. We've brought you in here because we want to ask you quite a lot of questions. Do you understand? Yes, yes, I think so. Oh, have I done something wrong? Sitting in the hot seat with a bright light shining in her eyes is a middle-aged housewife. We know what was said in this room all those years ago because there's a detailed account of it in the files of Australia's domestic spy organisation, ASIO. Now, Anne, the Central Committee just wants us to ask you a few questions, all right? When did you first hear about the Petrov business? This is Eddie Robertson. He's the head of the South Australian branch of the Communist Party. He's the good cop in this interrogation. Playing the part of the bad cop is Elliot Johnston. He's also a senior South Australian communist. Well, I was listening to Question Time while I got on with my knitting and I heard that horrid man Menzies say something about wanting to make a statement and I thought, oh, hello, what's he going to say now? And when he mentioned Petrov, I tell you, I dropped a stitch. And the woman in the hot seat? Her name is Anne Neal and she's also playing a part the part of loyal comrade in the Communist Party of Australia. Johnston and Robertson are right to be suspicious of her because she's actually an ASIO agent. You didn't know anything about Petrov's plans to defect before it happened? No, of course I didn't. Pretend you're happy when you're blue It isn't very hard to do Historian Philip Deary has spent a lot of time in the archives studying the life of Anne Neal. I see her as a person who, because she was inconspicuous, was regarded as a fluttery old lady, was matronly, white-haired, middle-aged, widower, was an ideal recruit for ASIO. Behind this innocuous exterior lies a committed, indeed fervent, anti-communist and a very determined woman. There will soon be an end to this cold and wicked war 
when those hard-headed communists get what they're looking for. From 1950 until 1958, Anne Neal is one of ASIO's most effective penetrative agents, or sparrows as they're known. Such is her reputation within ASIO that even after her years of active service have ended, she's still accorded the honour of a yearly debrief with her old employer. Shall I be mother? Every year, an ASIO officer dutifully drops in for a cup of tea and a chat. Now, have I told you about Eddie Robertson? Oh, a nice enough bloke, but ordinary, you know. He certainly had an ordinary level of intelligence. Not a profound thinker, our Eddie. (laughs) Why have you stopped taking notes? No, I insist. Here, have a pencil. But as for that Elliot Johnson, what an egotist. Secretive and selfish. And not nearly as brilliant as he told you he was. Have another scotch finger and I'll tell you all about the Reds. Anne Neal is already in her 50s when her career in espionage begins. There are three things I hold dear to my heart. The Christian faith, the British Empire and the monarchy. And the communists would destroy them all if they had their way. Communism is straight from hell. Anne's late husband Roy Neal had been gassed in World War I, which contributed to his early death. Roy's fate gives Anne Neal an interest in efforts to achieve harmony between nations. So in 1949, she innocently joins a peace organisation based in Adelaide. Historian Philip Deary again. Initially, she receives some information from a women's peace crusade in Adelaide, and she thought it bore a striking resemblance to communist propaganda. So she took it to the Attorney General and said, look, sorry, I've been caught up in this. What can I do about it? No, don't worry, Mrs Neal, leave it with us. And not long afterwards, an ASIO officer comes calling at Anne's home in suburban Adelaide. And so he contacted her and said, would you like to go to the South Australian Peace Conference just to test the water and so on? And she did. And from that moment on, she was hooked for the next eight years. ASIO asks Anne Neal to join as many communist front organisations as she can. She joins the New Theatre, the Eureka Youth League, the Union of Australian Women and many others. And she spies on all of them. So she's absolutely assiduous in the number of organisations she joined and in the work that she did on behalf of ASIO and on behalf of the Communist Party and these organisations, gathering information all the time for a handler who was extremely impressed with both the volume and the value of her, as they called it, her product, her intelligence material. Anne Neal has found her vocation. She's a natural spy. History, as I've always said, belongs to those who turn up at the meetings. Well, there were times when I was out at meetings every night of the week, even on Sundays. Anne Neal is paid £5.10 shillings a week by ASIO, plus £2 expenses, but money is never her primary motivation. It's a remarkable story in that her self-sacrifice and dedication almost knew no bounds with a vast number of reports and detailed information. 
And then one day, Anne really hits the jackpot. Despite the doubts of some party members, ASIO Sparrow is invited to join the Communist Party itself. She was able to inveigle her way into the office of the South Australian State Secretary, Elliot Johnson, and he found her an extremely charming lady and was able to dispel any doubts that some within the party who would, this is almost too good to be true, she's such a hard worker, she's so dedicated, she pays her dues on time. But Johnson said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Anyone who'd think that this fluttery old lady would be a member of the security police, you've got to laugh at that. Anne Neal throws herself into the small world of communist politics in 1950s Adelaide, where she works alongside party members like Beryl Miller. When we'd have a demonstration in front of Parliament House, right up in the building opposite, ASIO had an office right opposite, and they always got a good picture of everybody. So we'd always give them a little wave. <laughs> Beryl Miller has been a communist for nearly 70 years. She first joined the CPA in 1952, just a year after Anne Neal. She's 94 years old and still lives in Adelaide. I would be just about the oldest one, I think, around. We had a 100-year-old bloke died last week. <laughs> so now I am the oldest, I would think. <laughs> As a party member, Beryl met Anne Neal many times during the 1950s. I suppose if you were that way inclined, you could have found her a very likeable person. She was very motherly. She spoke very softly. She never raised a voice like me. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people would have held her in good regard because she was there, she was doing things, and that was important. She seemed to have a finger in every pie, you know, this making costumes for the new theatre, doing her typing and all that sort of stuff, you know. She made herself very valuable for the organisation. So I guess that that was done in order to offset any ideas that there might be regarding her as to her, whether she really was fed income or not. So that was my life. A woman with two masters, but only loyal to one of them, I'm proud to say. <laughs> By day, I was a hard-working member of the Communist Party. I even made jars of marmalade and pickles for their fundraising fates. <laughs> but by night, I did my real work for ASIO, writing up hundreds of security reports about the comrades and their activities. Throughout her career as a sparrow, ASIO struggles to control Anne Neal's passion for the job. Her handlers were trying to pull her back from some of her commitments. And she, undaunted, she would throw herself back into it, even after a series of illnesses which she had. She would recover and they'd say, take it easy, go on a holiday. And she would say, no, communists don't take holidays. So it was an incredible commitment. I haven't come across any other agent with quite that drive. Then all Anne's hard work with the Communist Party pays off again, for ASIO. The party asks her if she'd like to travel as a delegate to the World Peace Congress in Vienna and then go on to visit Moscow. 
the deal is clinched when she tells the cash-strapped Communist Party that she can pay her own fare, with money secretly supplied to her by an enthusiastic ASIO. And Andiel's visit to Moscow was the first time ever an ASIO agent had, if you like, gone over to the enemy territory. So this is a coup for ASIO, having an agent inside the belly of the beast. At Sydney's White City, thanks to Frank Sedgman's brilliance, Australia retained the... So in the Australian summer of 1952, while the South African cricket team tours and Adelaide prepares to host the Davis Cup final, Anne Neal gives up Christmas in the sun and sails off to wintry Europe at ASIO's expense. But according to Philip Deary, she undertakes the trip with some trepidation. Touch with her, let's call it paranoia, that she feared that if she were to become ill, and she was someone who often did suffer illnesses, that she would be taken to a hospital or a sanatorium and injected with a truth serum to make her talk. But ACO dissuaded her of that fear. But that's indicative of the intensity with which she regarded all things communist. In Vienna, I never had to endure so much codswallop in all my life. I don't think I heard a sensible word uttered during the entire Peace Congress. I sat through dreary hours listening to the same things said over and over again. Russia was eulogised. The United States was evil. But I sat stoically through it all and just nodded my head in fake agreement. After Vienna, Anne Neal travels behind the Iron Curtain with a delegation of Australian communists and fellow travellers. She arrives in Russia on Christmas Eve, 1952. Well, it's mind-boggling to think that she went in the winter. I remember my first winter there. It was uh, horrendous. I had what I thought was a winter coat. <laughs> it was ridiculously inadequate and I didn't have a proper hat. This is Australian historian Sheila Fitzpatrick, a world-renowned expert on Stalinist Russia. She lived in Moscow in the 1960s. Well, it's a really interesting time to go, 52, 53. The very last months of Stalin's rule, of course, she wouldn't have known that. So 52, 53, that's not that many years after 45 after the end of the war. So it's still very much a time of privation, economic reconstruction, and politically, toughness, although not terror on the level of the late 30s, targeted terror in the late Stalin period, and the Jews are the main target of that. As these convulsions rippled through Soviet politics, Anne Neal, like all foreign visitors to Russia, is escorted everywhere she goes by members of an organisation known as Vox. <laughs> so Vox is a всесоюзное общество культурных связей за границей, which means all union society for cultural ties with abroad. So it's the agency that looks after international tourists. Its duty is to show them the Soviet Union that it's good for them to see uh, and that they can understand without Russian. So they go to the opera, they go to the circus, they go and see a model collective farm, they go and see a model factory perhaps, they see uh, a nursery and kindergarten and they see the metro. 
are all accompanied by their guide who never leaves them which is actually fine if you don't know Russian. Now, for if you do know Russian, this can be quite irksome. But she'll be in a bubble, and so there won't be any casual contacts with anybody. Ah, my late hubby Roy. Oh, he would have loved the opera in Moscow. He was a talented amateur actor when I met him. I suppose I became an actor myself when I joined ASIO. <laughs> Although unlike Roy, I was a professional. Oh, I enjoyed being in Moscow, but not the company of my fellow Australians. <laughs> I have to say, most of them were just Stalin's useful idiots. I felt so sorry for the ordinary Russians living in this land of lies. The Vox guides were always so helpful, holding my arm on the icy footpath, translating my questions. <laughs> but of course, I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. The guides at Vox write reports on visiting red tourists like Anne Neal, which goes straight to the KGB. But in the end, there are real benefits to ASIO from Anne Neal's trip. Well, at that time, ASIO was very much a, a nascent, a fledgling institution, and any kudos that they could have brought to bear, particularly with the British intelligence services, would have been a feather in their cap. Yet more than just impressing ASIO's British colleagues, Anne Neal's visit to the Soviet Union also dazzles some of her Australian comrades she becomes a sort of celebrity among her fellow party members. When she returned from overseas, it was a real badge of honour. She spoke at great length with great enthusiasm about the Soviet experiment and its other virtues. It was like I'd come back from the Holy Land, which I suppose to them I had. I remember Eddie Robertson telling a room full of party members Comrade Anne is one of the few lucky comrades who has visited the Soviet. <laughs> he even said to me later, you're one of our most important cadres. <laughs> Poor old Eddie. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Despite her growing prominence in the party, it comes as a surprise to some of her comrades when Anne Neal is invited to attend the Soviet National Day celebrations at the Russian Embassy in Canberra. Elliot Johnson was quite peeved about my invitation, mainly because he didn't get one. I remember him having a right old whinge about it. Anne, Anne, he said, but I've been to the Soviet Union too. It's at these celebrations in November 1953 that Anne Neal meets the KGB spy Vladimir Petrov, soon to become the most famous Russian in Australian history. The two of them appear to hit it off straight away. They even have a private meeting for over an hour in Petrov's embassy office. He presents Anne Neal with a book, which he signs. In return, she offers to put up Petrov and his wife Evdokia in Adelaide, which they plan to visit in a few months. There was some sort of quite a close connection established between 
our Anne Neal and Vladimir Petrov, which is quite remarkable. Here we have a colonel in the KGB and a highly valued ASIO agent staying together under the one roof. But all of that came to naught because this is now the end of 1953, going into early 1954, when the momentum for defection was occurring. A statement made in the House of Representatives in Canberra by Prime Minister Robert Menzies gave first details of a Soviet spy ring in Australia. Vladimir Petrov, an official of the Russian Embassy whose home is in Canberra, had told the... Petrov's defection in April 1954 has profound consequences for Australian politics and for Anne Neal. It comes just a few months after her private meeting with Petrov in Canberra, and the Communist Party has finally become suspicious of Comrade Neil. Have a seat, Comrade. And by the desk, please. Eddie, would you lock the door, please? That's why she's called in and grilled by Robertson and Johnston. She fell under suspicion, so she was hauled in to the State Committee of the Communist Party to uh, undergo an interrogation. The doors were locked, the interrogation went on for several hours, and she was asked to explain her whole history, not only her prehistory of the Communist Party, but every front organisation she joined, what activities she undertook, her financial situation, and that was where she was most vulnerable, two-hour interrogation under bright lights, <laughs> locked door, she came through it relatively unscathed. She held a nerve. She showed enormous, if you like, strength of will and resilience, and she didn't crack. The party foolishly accepts Anne's assurances of loyalty, so she continues her double life as both a good communist and an ASIO agent. But this little sparrow's luck will soon run out. By 1958, suspicions that she was too good to be true were growing. And it was actually the mother of the Central Committee member, John Sandy, who expressed her misgivings to another comrade and said, we have long harboured doubts about Anne Neal and we think that she works for the security police. The interesting element of that conversation was that her confidant, to whom she was expressing these doubts, was herself an ACO agent. I'm assuming it was a woman, because it was quite an intimate conversation. And she, of course, informed ACO, who said, right, time to pull the plug. Pretend you're happy when you're blue. I didn't want to leave, but... ASIO insisted it was the end of the road. So, I concocted a story for the comrades. I said I'd found religion again, which is a lie. I'd never given it up. And I also told them I was upset over the Soviet invasion of Hungary, which wasn't a lie. Oh, you know, in the end, it was a relief. I felt like I'd been let out of prison. The head of ASIO, Colonel Spry, wrote me a lovely handwritten letter of appreciation. And my handlers and the boys at HQ must have had a whip round because they gave me a beautiful cutlery set as a retirement gift. I use it every Christmas. We knew that ASIO had their people around and 
we knew that whatever organisation we had around, there'd always be there somebody who was prepared to do, to do a job for ASIO. In 1962, a few years after she leaves the Communist Party, Anne Neill goes public as an ASIO sparrow. She publishes a series of newspaper articles under the headline, Secret Service Housewife. I spied for I security behind the Iron Curtain. I joined the party. I talked alone with Pow. She tricked the Reds. She tricked the Reds. When she did this, it had the imprimatur of ASIO, Colonel Charles Spry, the Director General of ASIO, who had been in regular contact with her during the previous decade, gave the go-ahead, gave the blessing, because he and the organisation believed it would be useful in discrediting on a very public stage the Communist Party and particularly its front organisations. When I went to the newspapers, I wanted to come in from the cold, so to speak. I wanted Adelaide and the world to know that my years in the Communist Party were a sham, that I was only in the party to help protect Australia from the menace of communism. When Anne Neill was revealed as being an ASIO agent, it was confirmation for what we had thought for a very long time. You wouldn't be a spy if you didn't enjoy it, from Philby down to Anne Neill. It's that sense of specialness from being involved in something that is hidden. In the case of Anne Neill, I imagine she would look around at the people she mixed with and think, if you knew, if you knew. I don't see her as merely another snitch, as someone who was, you know, prepared to do it for a short term and then get out. Her dedication, her commitment, her assiduousness makes her calling almost a moral one, that she was motivated by her own kind of morality that impelled her to sacrifice nearly a decade of a life as she saw it to a higher cause. Even a lifelong communist like Beryl Miller has some grudging respect for the woman who once spied on her. She worked very hard. Anne was a woman who was, um, she did a job for her cause that you can't deny. But there's one final twist in the Anne Neill story. Around the same time as she outs herself in the media, Anne Neill also adopts a political position that will forever tarnish her reputation. In the 1960s, she becomes an activist with Australia's homegrown far-right organisation, the League of Rights. Maybe ASIO has a sparrow in the League of Rights, but it isn't Anne Neill. She's a true believer. When Anne Neill, in her later life, embraced the anti-Semitic League of Rights and its Holocaust-denying leader, Eric Butler, with whom she became very friendly, it would seem to be an aberration for Anne Neill. But I think a sort of a clue to this embrace of such a far right-wing organisation springs from some of the things that we've seen in the 1950s, such as her zealotry, such as her sheer self-sacrifice, her readiness to give all to the cause. And so there was almost a messianic dimension to her. When I was a little girl sitting in church, I remember hearing these words. 
light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. That's what I believe. In my certainty is my strength. Golly, is that the time? Oh, I'm sorry, we'll have to finish up now. I have a League of Rights meeting to get to and I'm already late. Anne Neal died in October 1986, just three years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Little Sparrow was written and presented by Brett Evans and produced by Brett with Michelle Rayner. I'm Kirsty Melville and I'll catch you next time on the History Listen for another carpet ride into the past, right here on RN Summer. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.